student makes his case to the professor, and the professor kind of sits back, does the stroke his beard thing. He says, you know, I, I think I remember your paper. Was yours the paper that made the case for moral relativism? Sophomore responded, yes! Professor continued, are you the one who argued there's no such thing as justice or rightness, that one opinion is as valid as another? Sophomore replies, yes! Sophomore doesn't see where this is going. (laughs) (laughs) Professor spoke again. Are you the one who argued that morality is just opinion? You like chocolate, others like vanilla. The student answered, yes. To which the professor replied, I don't like blue folders. You get an F. Back in my 20s, back in my 20s, I used to tell the kids in youth group, probably not, this wasn't wise, but I told them this. Um, I used to tell the kids in youth group that if you ever, some of you remember this, if you ever meet someone who says there is no right and wrong, kick them in the shins, egg their house, and take their wallet. That's what I used to tell them and see if they still believe the same thing. You know, we, there are some things, there are some things that most people just say, this is just wrong, you know? There's something in us that, that, that just says, this is just wrong. And there's some things that most of us would just say, this is just right. There's a whole lot of things that are, that are grayer than that. But I would hope every person in this room would say that judging a person just on the basis of their skin color is wrong. It's wrong. Amen. Amen. That the Sandy Hook shooting was not a matter of perspective. It was wrong. That rape is wrong. That human trafficking is wrong. Most of the fashion choices of the 80s. (laughs) Just wrong. And hairstyles. Oh, lordy. Most people agree. There's some things that that, that just seem like they're the right thing to do. There are some things that just seem like the wrong thing to do. Most people agree with that. But here's the thing. Most people don't stop and reflect deeply on why. Why do I believe something's wrong? Why do I say something's wrong? What's my standard? What, what, what standard am I using to make that proclamation? Is my standard simply this? Or is there a higher standard that I can refer to? Is there a higher standard that I can point to and say, you know what, you should believe this is wrong too? Because. A lot of people don't reflect on that. And so we'll see statements like this that sound really good. And you look at the statement and you say, boy, that something seems pretty right about that. That people should have the right to do whatever they want to do as long as they don't hurt anyone else. That sounds like a good principle. But where does that come from? What, what's your standard? You, you, start, you see how this falls apart real quick when you start saying, well, what, what do you mean by right? What do you mean you have a right? And what if that right offends infringes on someone else's perceived right. And who gets to make the right and who gets to determine the wrong and then who enforces it and how do we decide what the punishment or reward is? And when we look, use words like hurt, well, what do you mean by hurt? How do you define hurt? What is your scale that you're using to weigh hurt? And what if you're defining hurt differently than someone else defines hurt? And what if they feel hurt by what you did and then you're hurt because they feel hurt that you hurt? You see? What's your standard? And, and a lot of people, like the person who turned in the paper, they just say, well, then everything must be here. Everything must be opinion. 
if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, for those of us who have chosen that way, if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, if we're going to follow his teachings, if we're going to follow in his ways, we don't have that choice. We have a standard that's been given us. You know, and, and that's a different teaching for another time. In fact, I hope we have time in 2014 to do a whole series on this. Why? Why in the world do Christians put that kind of authority in this old book? You know, why do you do that? That's another topic for another time. We do. We look to it as our absolute guide, our standard for truth and for faith. Now, a lot of people disagree with that. Here's an example I came across. Um, someone had given me this article some time ago. It was an old Newsweek article. The, the, the cover says, the case, religious case for gay marriage. Well, the editor said this, and, and he obviously doesn't agree with, with the worldview that I hold and others hold. He says, no matter what one thinks about gay rights, if you're for, if you're against, or if you're somewhere in between, the conservative resort to biblical authority is the worst kind of fundamentalism. To argue that something is so because it's in the Bible, it is more than intellectually bankrupt. It is unserious. It is unworthy of the great Judeo-Christian tradition. Well, for those of us who have a different opinion, we believe it's the very wisdom of God. And so we look to the scriptures as our guide, as our, as our standard. We know that everyone else doesn't necessarily do that, but... But that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to look at them and we're trying to be faithful to that. And for some of you, you may look back on this week, and this might be, of the six, this might be the one that was the most helpful for you. Because I know many of you right now, you're, you're wanting this. You're wanting to say, okay, God, I want to be faithful to what you say in the Scriptures. The problem is, I don't know who to believe. Because I have some people that are saying, here's what the Scriptures say. And other people are saying, here's what the Scriptures say. And so, how, how do I discern how do I discern if, if one of these is opinion, if they're both opinion? How do I discern this? Well, we're going to try to do today, before we ever get to the scriptures themselves that are in, in question, today I want to try to give you some basic tools, some basic um, skills that you can use to apply to the scriptures to try to help discern. How do we discern? How do we correctly interpret these scriptures and apply them today? That's what we want to try to do in... 30 minutes. <laughs> Laura, Laura called me this week. My wife called me. And she said, how's it going? Because I spent the first half of the week with my daughter up, up north. And, and so I've got a condensed week. Ah, oh, it's going great. I'm just trying to figure out how to take a master's level course uh, and condense it down into 30 minutes or less. But, but I got this. It's all good. Okay, here we go. So 30 minutes on how do you interpret the Bible. <laughs> oh, boy. Let's begin here. The Bible is both. This is so important to know about the Bible. The Bible is both descriptive and prescriptive. Let's start there. The Bible is both descriptive and prescriptive. By descriptive, we mean the Bible sometimes just describes what happened. Sometimes the Bible just does that. Sometimes the Bible just, here's what happened. And we should not follow that example. Some of the stuff you read in the Bibles, it makes bad grandpa look like St. Francis. It is horrible. It is not what you want to do. The Bible is filled with examples of people going way off the rails. All kinds of them. And you shouldn't point to those and go, oh, I should be more like Samson always was, right? He was a judge. He was a man of God. No, no. I should be more like Abraham in this situation. Or say, no, no, no. I should be like Noah. Just got done rereading Genesis, or I'm still in the process of rereading Genesis. You know, get drunk after the big flood and pass out in your tent naked. Okay, no, no, that's not, that's just descriptive. That is what happened. 
Um, here's a great quote that speaks to this. Uh, we can learn of the wrong of adultery, the wrong of adultery from David and Bathsheba, not only from referring to the Ten Commandments there. You can sometimes, you look at these descriptions of people behaving badly, and you can say, don't be like that. That's one of the things. Now, that's why, the reason, one of the reasons I bring this point up is that I saw this constantly, and I continue to see this constantly. People who are um, discrediting the scriptures, they're discrediting the scriptures because they look, look at these bad examples of marriages, or look at these bad, why should we look to them for advice on these things? Because look at how they behave. Well, some of it was descriptive. Um, here's an unsettling quote. Now, the quote would not be unsettling if it was coming from someone who wasn't a professing believer. It wouldn't be unsettling. It would just be their opinion, and, and I would listen and try to understand. But this is coming from an Episcopal bishop, and I, and I find this unsettling. He says, The understanding of marriage has not been a constant throughout history, but rather has been gradually evolving over time. Surely none of us would agree with or condone marriage practices in biblical times. Now, if that's your opinion, that's your opinion. But here's why this is unsettling to me. He is pointing people to a direction that the scriptures don't point us. The scriptures don't point us towards looking for an evolution with marriage. What the scriptures actually do when it comes to marriage, they say, what was marriage like before sin entered the world? They, they point us back there. They say, what can we expect when Jesus returns? What When Jesus, the bridegroom, returns for his bride, the church, what can we expect? They point us to those two, those two, the beginning and the end. And then the Bible's filled with wonderful references of how do we live that out now. Chapters like Ephesians 5, like 1 Corinthians 13. We have all this wonderful life-giving instruction that says, now how do you live in this time between the times? I believe he's pointing us to a different direction, and he specifically is pointing us to these bad examples. Well, the reason I feel that's unfair, I, I feel it's kind of akin to saying, why would you go to a hospital to get well when there's so many sick people there? You wouldn't say that, right? And so you can look at bad examples in the Scripture and, and make it a kid pass. So, so I, I would caution us against looking at descriptive things and trying to say that the Bible's making them prescriptive. All right, so there's a little bit on descriptive. Let's talk about prescriptive now. Prescriptive, there's a place to write this in your notes. Prescriptive passages reveal God's standards for faith and conduct. There are some passages that are prescriptive, meaning do this. In fact, there's a whole lot of them in the scriptures. They say do this or don't do this. If we read a passage in the Bible where God is telling people to do something, how do we know what applied then and what applies now? If you have your Bibles, let's open up to an example of some people who did this well and some people who didn't do this well, and we see them both here in this one little passage. Um, Acts chapter 17, starting with verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one free today, too. Every week we keep a stack of them there at the tables. If not this week, if some other week you'd like to take one and, and read it and study it for yourself, we would love that. Just take it. It's absolutely free. All right, here we go. Acts chapter 17, starting with verse 1. The, the passage here is... Uh, talking about a man named Paul who took this message of reconciliation that we've been talking about for the last two weeks. He was taking this to the world, all right? And here's one of the things that happened as he was trying to take this to the world. When Paul and his companions had passed through two cities, or two areas, uh, they came to places. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned them from his own opinions and experiences. 
No. Oh, I got that wrong? What does it say? From the scriptures. He probably included his opinions. He included his, his experiences. But he reasoned. He had this scale that he used with these other brothers who apparently said they agreed with the same scales. And sisters, I guess, as we'll see here soon. Um, he, he reasoned from the scriptures. And from the scriptures, he explained and he proved that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. And so they expressed their concerns in respectful ways. They said, tell us from the scriptures why you agree. Is that what it says? No. What did they do? They formed a mob. They formed a riot. But this reads like today. You know, it, even before I started really studying and reading and, and, and all that, I saw a whole lot of mob behaviors from a whole lot of people on both sides of this thing. There's the people who, they don't want to even listen without even knowing folks. They show up with their picket signs without even asking any questions. They call for a boycott. Without even sitting down with these people, they jump to all kinds of of. of ridiculously bad othering behaviors. They demean and they mock in their tones. They, they, they engage in slander and threats and vandalism and even violence. They label people and they call for lawsuits before they even attempt to sit down and to discuss. That's what happened in Thessalonica. That's what happens often today. Well, let's see what happened in the next town. This is uh, picking up in verse 10. Let's fast forward a little bit. They come to another town called Berea. So things aren't going well. The mob's going crazy. They sneak them out of town. And as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness, and they... Say it with me. Examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds, stirring them up. Little group. Let's follow around. Let's just cause trouble. Some things don't change. Can we agree to be different than that? Not, not than the Bereans. Than the mob. Can we agree? I mean, this is what we... Can we try to apply weeks one and two of the series? Where let's try to really listen. We, you don't agree? Okay, let's, let's try to understand. Maybe we can find some common ground. Maybe we can find a scale to start with. Or maybe you can help me understand your scale. You know, and maybe I can help you understand mine. So that we are listening. Why do we believe what we, we do? Could we try that, you know? And in the process, if someone starts quoting the Bible, can we be like the Bereans? And can we say, okay, let's go to the scriptures together? Because there's a whole lot of people quoting the Bible. And they're coming to some really different conclusions. Can we come together and, and try to explore the scriptures? And do we know how to do that? You know, I tell you, week in and week out, and every week, I will do my best in fact, whoever we put up here, we will have them do their best, and I'll do my best 
Not to present ourselves as the ones that have all the answers on things. <laughs> you know me better than that, right? But what we'll try our best to do is we will try to present accurate, well-researched teachings. And I will encourage you to fact-check me. As much as I joke about the emails, I love the feedback. I love hearing, oh, wait a minute, I don't know if you said this the way you think you said this. Or, you know what, have you checked your source on this? I love that. Because I don't want to try to convince you of something as much as I want to try to be accurate to what the scriptures say and what God says. That's, that's my job. And my goal is not to set myself up in, or set any of us up here for anything other than we are, but rather our hope is to try to inspire and equip you to get into the scriptures. These words of life, this unparalleled gift to our world. How do we do that? It's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. The chuckles come out from the seminarians. Hermeneutics. There's a place to write this in your notes. Hermeneutics is the process we use to discern biblical principles and mandates. Hermeneutics is the process we use to discern biblical principles and mandates. There are a lot more tools that you can put in your hermeneutical toolbox than I'm going to give you today. I've got just a couple minutes, so I just want to give you a, a couple quick tools that I think will be helpful as we approach these challenging scriptures the next couple weeks. All right. It's, it, the thing I want to say though before we get to the actual tools is that it's not as easy as you might think. I was just in a conversation with a, a young woman a couple weeks ago, and she says, "What do you mean it's not easy?" She was asking me questions about about uh, about our church and 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 what we're talking about, and she says, "What do you mean it's not easy? Just read the Bible and do what it says." Okay. I wish I would have had one of these little blue sheets that I now have for you. Take a look at the little blue sheet that says the hermeneutical challenge on top. I don't know anyone who does everything that the Bible instructs people to say. Because here are some of the things. I mean, just take a look at that. It might be interesting during lunch for you to sit down with someone and go, what do you think? Which one of these apply word for word today? Which of them apply in principle? Which of them were for different people back then? It might be interesting. And then not to just answer it based on your opinion, but to say, why? You know, the Bible instructs us to not wear clothes of two different materials. We didn't probably check your tags when you came in the door, right? You know, um, why don't we tell people? Why don't we warn them against getting tattoos? You know, why, why don't we hand out tambourines at the door? The Bible says in Psalms, praise him with tambourines. You know, here's your bulletin. Here's your tambourines, you know. You, you say, I went to that church. <laughs> you know, Jill and Dan, they usually each week, they'll say, you know, welcome those around you. The scripture says to do it with a holy kiss. The Bible says it. So, turn to the person, no. You know, and, and some people would say, well, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. Why don't you do everything the Bible says? Well, we're trying to do everything that the Bible asks us to do. And it's not sometimes as easy as some people might think. What applied to them? What applies to us? What applies to both? What applies in principle? What applies word for word? It is worth noting at this point that the devil used Scripture as he tempted or attempted to tempt Christ. That same devil would love to get us to work for him, to pass along teachings that are either false or misleading. He would love to do that. And he does it to people on all sides of this thing. So here are some just a couple tools for your hermeneutical toolbox. If I want to frame this thing, I would say there's two basic pieces to doing hermeneutics right. The first is to zoom in, and then the second is to zoom out. 
to first zoom in and look at that actual passage and say, what did it say? What was this author trying to say to that audience? That's the starting point, to try to find out what were they saying. So start there, zoom in, and then zoom out. Because once you get that established, are there other things that the scriptures say that could help us understand that passage? Let me, give you, let me dig into this a little bit more. Let's start with the zooming in. A great way you can do this with zooming in, and there's a place to write these in your notes as well, compare different translations. That's a really easy way to start, and it's really easy to do. You can go online to a resource like BibleGateway.com. It's a free resource. I use it every week. And you can just put multiple translations side by side. How many have used BibleGateway.com before, right? Ever charge you? They never charge me, so it's, I think it's free. All right? Um, and you can compare these translations. One of the reasons that's important is because the Bible wasn't written in English. And so you've got these other people who are trying to say, okay, this, in these ancient languages... How would we translate that into modern words? And so you're going to find that they don't all match up. And one of the reasons that's helpful is you can see, hey, it looks like all the scholars are pretty much in agreement about this is what it said. Oh, look at this. Are you guys talking about the same passage here? Evidently, there's some challenge there in how to interpret that piece. So you can get a very quick look and say, there's a lot of agreement. People seem to agree on what this one says, but maybe here's one where there's more disagreement. So start there. Number two, after you've, you've compared some translations, now consider the context. So important. Because the Bible contains poetry and songs and letters and parables and proverbs and narrative and even this thing called apocalyptic literature. All kinds of different literature that you have to read different. You don't read a poem the same way you read history. You know, so so you, you have to know which of the styles is being used. Not only that, it contains the writings of a wide range of authors on at least three different continents from hundreds of years. And so how do you even begin to make sense of all that? Well, a, a good place to start, I'd encourage you, if, if I were building a, uh, a home library from scratch, I would, I would get two resources. I would get the ESV Study Bible and the NIV Study Bible. I'd recommend getting at least two if you're starting out because there's a temptation to, to read one and go, oh, here's what it means. Well, it's what that person says it means. And to have at least two from a different publisher gives you an opportunity to be able to say, okay, this, they, they agree, maybe there's more agreement here, or no, they disagree. And why is that? So that would be, and I put those resources in your notes as well. Not because they're the best on the planet, but I really uh, respect both of those. All right, number three. Another thing, if you're zooming in, you're trying to say, okay, what did it say? For me, what I do is I compare what's called high views of Scripture. I compare high views of Scripture. When I set out to develop a reading list for the series, I, I said I intentionally want to get people who have different conclusions than I, than I went, had coming in. I did that on purpose. But when I did that with my reading list, I also wanted to say I want to find people who are using the same scale, or at least claim to be using the same scale that I'm using. Because I can get opinions, you, you know that, you can get opinions from anybody all over the map, right? I, I want to find opinions from people who are saying I'm using the same scale. I'm using the scriptures, but not just the scriptures. I believe that they're inspired by God. I believe that these scriptures are, are God-breathed. I believe that the Bible is connected rather than uh, uh, contradictory. I believe there's an unfolding message here that weaves from beginning to end. And if you don't hold that position, I understand and sometime we could sit down and we could talk about why you don't and why I do, and we, we can go there. But, but, but disciples of Jesus, we hold, a, we hold a high view of the scriptures. 
It's our scale. It's our higher standard. We believe Jesus didn't just embrace the word. He was the word made flesh. There's clearly a human element in the scriptures. Absolutely there is. But that in no way, shape, or form, in our view, diminishes the authority of the text. Here's a person who I think says it so much better than than I could. This person says this, and this is an example of a person who holds a high view of scripture. We must be careful when we're talking about the Bible. We must be careful what we make of that word human. If we glide from speaking of their humanity into implying some kind of inadequacy in them, as though their being human were a shameful secret that we have laid bare, a deficiency that we're not in a position to patch up, then it is we, not they, that must stand charged with ignorance and superstition. Leave this one on the screen for just a minute, Mike, because I love this last sentence. The humanity of the scriptures does not entitle us to patronize them. Isn't that good? The humanity of the scriptures does not entitle us to patronize them. Okay, let's continue on with this quote. The perfection of the Psalms does not consist in their being the most perfectly metrical verses or containing the most perfect poetic imagery. The perfection of the letter of Paul does not consist, letters of Paul, does not consist in their being the highest examples of epistolary elegance. Neither does the perfection of the historical books consist in their being the most unambiguous records or the most discerning evaluation of sources. The only perfection that counts for those who hold a high view of Scripture is this, that God truly attests himself and his deeds through his poetry, these letters, this history. The faith required of the reader of Holy Scripture is obedience to the testimony that God bears within them. And that is one and the same as the faith that leads to salvation. I know we just drank from a fire hose there. But this is a high view of Scripture. Here would be an example of a low view of Scripture. Now, this person uh, said they have a high view, but then they're divining high view different than I am. Here's what this person says. Given what we now know about the genetic, social, and psychological causes of homosexuality, the graciousness of God's creative uh, intention, it is difficult to accept Paul's view. Paul seems to have agreed with the generally held belief of the ancient world that there is only one sexual nature, what we would call a heterosexual nature. If Paul... Here's here's where you see the low view in in play. If Paul could be confronted with the reality of homosexual orientation, consistency would require him to acknowledge the naturalness of homosexual acts for people with a homosexual orientation. Now, I'm not passing judgment right now on what he says other than I'm just trying to contrast right now low view, high view. If I'm reading him correctly, what he seems to be saying is here is if Paul knew then what we know now, Paul would have written something differently. We could sit down and we could, we could discuss why you believe that. But that's a different paradigm than I hold. I believe that the Holy Spirit was writing through Paul. And the Holy Spirit knew then what we know now. And so we don't neglect any of these things that he says. But we have a different paradigm when it comes to what do the scriptures say. So there would be an example of high view, low view. All right, so there we go. Five minutes. And and here's my zooming in hermeneutic. Compare translations, consider the context, and then compare high views. All right, so now let's talk about zooming out. Now let's go from there to zooming out. And one of the important things you do is you say, what else does the Bible say? What else does it say? Once you have a clear understanding of what a particular passage is actually saying, 
The next step then is to see, are there any other passages in the Bible that help us better understand the passage in question? In other words, are there any other parts of the Bible that help us interpret something that's difficult to understand on its own? Here's an example. Let me just give you that. Um, In the book of Leviticus, there are all kinds of very specific instructions. How many of you have read Leviticus or parts of Leviticus? All right. All kinds of restrictions, including dietary restrictions. You got this chapter, chapter 11, where you've got all kinds of dietary restrictions. Should we apply all of them? Well, Leviticus says what it says. It says don't eat these things. When you pull back now, after you've done that work, you pull back, you see there's other scriptures that seem to indicate maybe that's not true for all people at all time, including passages like this. Genesis 9, 3. As Noah comes out of the ark, God says to him, hey, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Just as I gave you the green, or as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything for food. And then Mark 7, uh, 19, there's some commentary that was put in there by the author. Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. So you look at these things and you say, okay, the scripture doesn't contradict itself. It informs its other passages. What do we do with this? What do we do with that? So there's an example of zooming out. Because God wasn't speaking in a vacuum. All scripture had a context. It came to a particular person, this word from God. It was delivered to an audience. You know, zooming out sometimes will help us to see. Maybe was this for them? Maybe is this for us? All right. Number two on zooming out. Are there any relevant seed ideas or breakouts? A seed. A seed is a plant that's not fully grown. And sometimes the Bible appears to present a teaching that once it takes root, will lead to a more profound or sweeping application. Here's an example of this. Some people used to use the Bible, believe it or not, some people used to use the Bible to try to defend slavery. Slavery in America, the way it was practiced. Well, how how did these seed ideas change the world? These are in the scriptures. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body. It's out of 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. Colossians 3.11, there is no longer Greek or Jew, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And and Philemon, that that book was written to a slave owner about a slave who would run away. And look what he says. Paul says, hey, have him back for good, no longer as a slave, better than a slave, as a what? Dear brother, what do these ideas do? As God puts these ideas out, and they take root, and people reflect on these deeply. What happens to slavery? Among believers. It, 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 it demolishes the, 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 all of the things that would hold it together. Now, a breakout idea. breakout idea is basically a seed idea on steroids. A breakout idea is, is where... This isn't just a seed. This is such a stunning example that it forces you to rethink things. I mean, we've mentioned different times before that Jesus' interactions with women are great examples. They had, Jesus was radical in the way he, he interacted with women. He, did, he said, did and said countercultural things. He provided shocking teachings. He, he, he offered examples that shattered patriarchal paradigms among the Jews and Gentiles of the day. All right, so there's a really brief overview of that. And I'll even give a briefer overview of the next one, but it's, I've got to mention it. Number three, as you zoom out, does redemptive movement appear to be in play? 
redemptive movement. There's a book I reference in your notes by William Webb. Chapter 2 does an exceptional job of this. It is worth the price of the book. Just chapter 2 alone, where he talks about redemptive movement. Here's redemptive movement. It looks like this. Any questions? No. Here's what, here's what, here's what redemptive movement looks like. If X is the existing culture, there appear to be times where God gives an instruction that moves people to Y instead of Z. Z is, this is on earth as it is in heaven. This is, here's the instruction. This will be true now for you. This will be true 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now. When we're in heaven, this will still be true. Practice this. Thou shalt not steal. That's a Z, right? That's a Z. For the people coming out of slavery, 400 years as a people, there was this sacrificial system that got instituted prior to Jesus. Some of those might have been a why. There's different examples we see in the scripture where it appears what God is doing, he's moving people. Moving people. Redemptive movement. I'm moving people towards where ultimately we're going to be when things are on earth as they'll be in heaven. I know that's threatening for a lot of people to hear me talk like that, but we'll give some more examples hopefully over the next several weeks. So there's my 20-minute hermeneutic. I have some, probably some college professors who uh, would be saying, what in the world? Huh? I don't, okay, anyway, but we won't go there. Um, as we begin to wrap things up today, I just want to acknowledge that it would sure be a lot easier to not do all this. It would sure be a lot easier to just get a bumper sticker, a feel-good bumper sticker. I saw one of those. I referenced it before. A couple months ago, I saw this bumper sticker. God bless everyone, no exceptions. And at the time when I referenced the bumper sticker, I said, you know, I appreciate the heart of the person who had this. I don't just appreciate, the more I reflect on this, I don't just appreciate the heart, I love the heart of the person who said this. And ultimately, when it comes to reconciliation, isn't this what we're hoping for? We want to bring everybody here. We, we want them to, to come to understand that this is God's book of, these are his words of life. These, these are instructions that he's given us that are, that are life-giving, that can help us in this time between the times. And God wants to bless people. But the reason I couldn't put that bumper sticker on my, my little forerunner is, is because it could be misleading. You know, there would be people that might look at that bumper sticker and just assume, well, then it doesn't matter how I live my life. And that would be misleading. God is very concerned about how we live our life for good reasons. A good king can't bless rebellion. A good parent can't bless foolish or disrespectful behavior. A good husband can't bless his wife's unfaithfulness. A good counselor can't bless harmful ways of thinking. A good friend can't bless self-destructive behaviors. And if I'm trying to save you, I can't bless decisions that might be leading towards death. Through his word, how does God reveal himself to us? He reveals himself as king, as father, as husband, as counselor, as friend, and as savior. And so as best we can, what we want to try to do as we bring the message of reconciliation is bring the whole thing, bring the, the love and the God wants to bless you, but then also bring kind of that, not just the kind, of bring that hard truth that sometimes that's going to mean things that are really hard to hear. And that's why here's my closing thought. 
as we go forward into these next weeks, which are just going to be hard. There's just no way around it. They're going to be hard. We need to remember this. The Bible offers equal conviction under the law, but what else? Equal protection under grace. Whenever you go into the scriptures, if you're going to read the scriptures, you are going to find things that are going to go, he just said that. And we're all going to find these moments of, wow, we come under a conviction that we're not living in alignment, every one of us. But the other thing you're going to see that's so beautiful is this equal protection under grace. That there is a God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And as we look at these things, I mean, whether it's this issue or any other issue, let's do it with that spirit of, of challenging one another but encouraging one another and supporting one another loving one another, and really listening to one another. And so thank you for listening today. I'm fully aware that at any one of these Sundays, we could have somebody step, stand up and do the whole Thessalonians mob thing. I, it could happen. You know, I, certainly it's happened to other, other churches. And I want to thank you that if you felt like doing that at different times, that you've, you've been polite and, and respectful. But I want to let you know, I, I want to hear from you, not in front of everybody. Everybody in a shouting match, but I do. I honestly do. And and if you feel like I've said things that are misleading, or things that are are hurtful, or things that that were inappropriate, I would love to hear that. We can have a discussion. You can send me an email. We have a, an email that's elders at emmanuelcovenant.com. We would love to hear from you. There's things I can learn uh, from from you and from from others. All right. Well, next week we get into the challenging passages. Um, and so as we go forth, let's pray a blessing as, as we do. It's, so please stand. Let me pray a blessing over us. Let's get ready to get our Berean on these next couple weeks. Let's go into the scriptures. Let's see what they say and what God would have us to do with them. Let's, let's pray. Father, that's the blessing I ask for us as we go forth, that you would give us that spirit that was on the Bereans, where, where they wanted to go into your word, and they wanted to explore those scriptures. And they didn't just accept what, what somebody was saying but they sought truth. Lord, may you help us with that. Will you help us, inspire us by this one-of-a-kind gift to us, your word. And then, Lord, help us to understand what it means and then what we do with that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.